Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Credit Sites No More Risk Better podcast. In this episode, we provide a recording of our U.S. financials and special situations teams call from March 16, 2023, addressing issues facing the U.S. regional banking system. Jesse Rosenthal, Peter Simon, and Josh Kramer provide a detailed assessment of what led Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank to be put into receivership what other regional banks could be in trouble, and which ones are well-positioned to navigate this period of strained liquidity and financial market volatility. We hope you enjoy this special edition, and good luck navigating the choppy bond market waters out there. Uh, so switching gears here a little bit, um, moving from how one resolution might play out to risk of more resolutions coming down the pipe. Uh, obviously, everybody is sort of worried about uh, who's the next domino to fall. Uh, like I said, uh, First Republic is, is pretty clearly uh, coalescing in consensus names. Uh, we had headlines hit late last night uh, that they were pursuing uh, strategic alternatives. Um, I, I will address uh, First Republic uh, at the end of this, I, I promise you. Uh, but in the meantime, I, I want to give Peter a chance uh, to to address how we're thinking about their regional banks uh, and, and any broader comments there, both in terms of liquidity pressures that we would see seeing here any games in particular and we would either avoid or take a more critical eye at as we more susceptible to these liquidity runs and then kind of broader picture how we're thinking about it, how this might change uh, anything from a regulatory standpoint and i think the regulatory standpoint in particular um you know everyone has the regional bank TLAC proposals at the back of their head for this year uh so i know that's a lot peter that i threw at you uh, but the people want to know how you know who's who are the regional banks we need to be worrying about here. Sure, and um, yeah, the one thing I wanted to clarify from uh, my previous comments is, um, you know, when I said that you know the group that we're looking at um, in our coverage, uh, we think you know as a group uh, should be able to withstand stand the situation. I just want to highlight that First Republic is not in our coverage. So I, that comment, you know, we're sort of looking at them separately, not saying, you know, not making a, a prediction at this stage on, on the outcome for First Republic. Um, we included them in the deposit analysis and of, you know, of the banks, you know, that that were in in that analysis, you know, they they look like an outlier. You know, they, they're the outlier at this point. Uh, in terms of some of the markers of confidence sensitivity on the deposit profile. So that that's uh, all say on First Republic for now. But yeah, I mean, you know, a few other points on kind of liquidity across the, the regional banks in general. Uh, for one, we've seen no indication 
whatsoever, Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong, but that month that deposits are leaving the banking system entirely, um, that, that people are, have a broad distrust of, of, uh, banks suddenly, you know, uh, aside from maybe the, the, you know, the QT impact on, on overall system wide deposits, which, you know, is not, is not new, but in terms of sort of a broader, you know, that doesn't seem to be, uh, occurring at all. Obviously, we would expect in the wake of what happened, some, you know, some shifts, you know, between banks, you know, and I think in that longer tail of mid-sized and smaller regional banks, you know, I wouldn't say that all, all of those banks, um, you know, we don't cover all of them. So, you know, each of them um, you know, will vary uh, in terms of, you know, a variety of, of metrics in terms of their customer profile, um, you know, loan quality you know, et, et cetera. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, you know, we think, you know, the large, uh, the large regional banks, you know, are in a good position to either have limited deposit outflows or even in, you know, in some cases pick up, pick up deposits, you know, from banks that, that, uh, that people are more nervous about, you know, again, you know, within, you know, within our coverage, you know, you know, Comerica kind of sticks out as, as a name that has, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit more of a vulnerable deposit profile, you know, than the median within the group. But, you know, I, I think, you know, worth, worth mentioning that, you know, Comerica looks a lot closer to the median of the regional banks than it does, you know, to, a you know, Silicon Valley bank. Again, I know we keep reiterating it, but was just, you know, way out of the stratosphere, um, in, in terms of, you know, just the concentration of, of the, of the deposit profile in, in a small number of customers. So, yeah, I, I have been reading the, uh, Q and A Q and, um, we have gotten a few questions on, uh, regulation generally, um, and what the implications might be for regional bank, uh, regulation. Obviously there, you know, there's been some early comments about, you know, just broadly speaking that, you know, they want to, you know, that, um, you know, Biden administration, you know, has, wants to, you know, take, take a harder look at, at, uh, regulation of regional banks, you know, just to take a step back, you know, there was, you know, in 20, uh, 2018 and 19, there was, you know, a series of measures that both legislatively and from the fed that, you know, tailored the regulations across the regional banks, essentially, uh, released some of the regional banks, you know, especially, you know, especially smaller ones from some of the harsher regulations that, that came on board after Dot, uh, from Dodd Frank. So, you know, there's a possibility that, that there will be looking at, you know, sort of untailoring, um, uh, by the Fed. You know, I don't, I don't think that's something that would happen instantaneously that that would be something the fed doesn't make you know major regulatory decisions overnight or or uh, in a, in a week i think that would be something that plays out over a while but um we do have you know different leadership of bank regulation at the fed appointed by president biden um as opposed to the the uh Randall Quarles who was appointed by president trump so you know there there is less of a you know, certainly not a deregulatory agenda. You know, definitely things are trending towards, you know, increased regulation. You know, I, I think, you know, the first place that regulators might be looking is just, you know, incre increasing liquidity regulation, right? So 
only category one, two, and three banks are subject to the LCR. So that basically excludes everyone under 250 billion in assets. Silicon Valley Bank was just below that marker and clearly, you know, mismanagement of liquidity at two, 200-ish billion uh, bank uh, had a significant impact on the system. So, yeah, that's that's one thing that could be looked at. Um, and we've had a few questions in the queue about regional bank HELAC. Um, so uh, our expectation that certainly before uh, SVB was that things were looking as you know, trending in the direction that some sort of TLAC requirement would would come on board for Category 3 banks, you know, your PNC, Truist, uh, Capital One, U.S. Bank Corp type of banks. So I guess, you know, and, and that that's not, you know, that there hasn't been a formalized uh, proposed rule yet. There likely will be at some point. Uh, so the question, I guess, is, you know, does regional bank TLAC get extended, you know, to smaller uh, to kind of the next tier down in size or to even smaller banks, I think anything is possible. I don't really see how that would alleviate concerns that led to SVB. And, you know, TLAC is really about what happens in case of, of failure. It, it doesn't really uh, address preventing the failure. So I, I would think, and, you know, Jesse, chime in if, if you uh, have any thoughts, but... um. I would think that regulatory changes will, or at least should, uh, initially focus on you know what you know what regulations should would have prevented the failure. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and, and that ties into a bunch of uh, other questions you're getting, which is around liquidity and SVB LCR, and kind of we know now SVB was not subject to LCR, it was not subject to NSFRs, NBCFs. I don't want to get details here, but I think one of the sort of issues with SVB from a regulatory standpoint here was just how fast they grew and how big they became because pre-COVID, they were firmly below that $100 billion mark. Um, they only got to be a top 20 bank over 24 months effectively. And the way the regulations are written and work, and, and I would imagine there's there be, uh, thinking a, a little harder about this, but you don't immediately, you know, just when your asset base goes over a hundred billion or 250 billion, you don't immediately become subject to all the regulations. I think for, you know, understandable practical reasons. Um, so, so in general, you move into the higher category when your asset base has, has averaged that threshold for a period of, I think, four consecutive year, uh, quarters. And then even then there's a little bit of a lag effect. So I do think that the SVB situation was partially a case of just that speed and not having enough time to, to kick in. If you actually read through their 10K from 2022, they say that they submitted because of, I think, this growth in the increase in regulation, they submitted their first living will at the beginning of 2023, which is, uh, could be something that's darkly funny when we can all laugh a little bit more about this, this situation. Um, and then just kind of conceptually about the point about an LCR, I'm guessing that that would have caught, regulators would have caught it. Again, this is purely conjecture here, but going back to what I was saying about how bank liquidity risk really depends on a lot of assumptions around the duration of the liability side of the balance sheet. And so my guess is that if they were subject to the LCR, the regulators are going to have a lot more scrutiny 
as to the LCR model, because you have to model what your 30 day stress outflows are. And, you know, in an ideal world, if these Federal Reserve and regulators take a look at uh, SVP's LCR and assumptions for their 30 day stress outflow and say, you know, what is this a joke? And, and that's how you sort of get the regulatory on top of it. That, that, that's my conjecture and my guess. And I don't know, I think it's fairly obvious to whatever degree regulators were scrutinizing, scrutinizing internal liquidity, liquidity modeling at SVP, even just beyond the straight LCR type requirement, they clearly were not scrutinizing it closely enough. And to be honest, this is not a case of uh, exposures and offside risk lurking in the deep, dark corners of a, of a bank balance sheet. It, it was all kind of staring at you right in the face, to, to, to be perfectly frank. And then I do want to address FRC just, just kind of briefly, and we do intend to have a piece out either tonight or tomorrow with our kind of updated thoughts about how, how we're thinking about, especially individual games during this liquidity crisis. You know, I think one of the really difficult things here is that, for lack of a better term, we don't actually know if there is a liquidity crisis. I'm speaking more broadly. We don't actually know that there's a liquidity crisis. It has been one week since SVB effectively died and fell out of bed. It's been one week since SVB had bank run. Uh, we do not have any publicly available data about deposit flows. Uh, there hasn't been a ton out there in terms of bank management commentary. And, and we have a theory about that as well. And so we're largely in the dark here um, in terms of real fundamental actual numbers to go off of. And so in place of that, it is good old fashioned fear and panic and rumor mongering, all of which is aspirated obviously by, by the digital information and banking age, which we'll also kind of come back to here. So that's a long way of saying, we don't actually know if there's a liquidity crisis happening for, for most of the banks. That being said, we're starting to think that there is one group of people that probably know more than anybody else that have access to material non-public information, such as, such as deposit flows over the past week. Um, and that, uh, actually make public, uh, public actions on it. And it's a very long-winded way of saying the rating agencies, which are not exactly known for being ahead of the curve in terms of crises, banking or otherwise, might actually have a ton of informational value this week. And by that, I mean, reading agencies' actions that we've seen over the past couple of days have been, there hasn't been that many, but the actions that we've seen on some of the banks have been fairly stark. There have been multiple notch downgrades, First Republic kind of being first and foremost where the action is already taken. Um, and a couple others that ever put on watch. And I think there's a very strong implication that any bank that's had rating actions on them the past couple of days probably implies that in the rating agency conversation with management, they learned something about this liquidity crisis. And what they learned was enough to have them immediately downgrade a bank. I don't think the rating agencies downgrade banks if there is a question of whether there's a liquidity crisis, I think they do it when it's actually happening. That, that would be my assumption here. So 
that's if we want to bring it back to First Republic, that's not a particularly good signal for First Republic. Um, the degree to which that they have been just kind of chopped in a very quick uh, period of time from the rating agencies, and they've been chopped multiple notches. Our interpretation, and we're kind of still still finalized, means it's a thesis for how to read and interpret which banks could actually be feeling a bank run in the absence, obviously, of any public information. We're, we're starting to think that the, that the rating agency actions might actually be a really good framework to, to base off of as, as sort of an implication where the bank crusts are actually happening. And unfortunately, from that perspective, it doesn't really sound good for First Republic. Um, that being said, I do want to just hammer home the points. And again, we don't cover First Republic, but hammer home the point with First Republic is to the degree that they do get pushed into resolution, to the degree that we do have a bank run happening there. And bank runs, once they start, are very, very difficult to stop. Um, especially one that is based purely on sort of confidence and, and fear. Uh, if FRC does get, uh, does go under because of this, uh, bank run pressure, it's not the same value situation as Silicon Valley Bank. We cannot stress this enough. Yes, they have, uh, you know, mark to market loss embedded in their health to maturity uh, portfolio, as does almost literally every single bank with a health to maturity portfolio. The mark-to-market loss for First Republic Bank is nowhere near the uh, relative size of the loss for Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, they would still have plenty of positive equity if they were to take that mark. Uh, they have positive equity with the mark on the AFS book as well. Um, so at, at the very least, there, there's a little bit better news uh, for potential FRC holders in a recovery situation if they do ultimately fold just because of the of the difference in uh, in asset based value compared to SVP. Uh, just sticking with the HDM portfolio, uh, we have a lot of questions here on accounting hedging. Uh, basically, uh, something along the lines of SVP had this fast uh, HDM book and, and this whole why didn't they hedge the interest rate risk? Why you know which banks do and do not? The, the very short, simple answer is they cannot. Uh, any, you know, if you have a zero credit risk security in a held to maturity portfolio, you cannot hedge any, uh, changes in the fair value that are related to interest rates. Uh, you can hedge credit, you can have hedge FX, you cannot hedge the interest rate and the fair value. Um, and I think again, kind of conceptually that makes sense because if you're intending to hold this security to maturity anyway, what the heck do you care about fair value? It never, it never actually flows through the balance sheet or the income statement anyway. So there's nothing to hedge. Um, so I think that's an important point here. Um, it wasn't, uh, SVP just going, you know, YOLO long treasury RMBS when they should have been hedging. Uh, they actually can't hedge, um, at least on the HTM book. You can hedge the available for sale book. You can hedge the fair value unrealized losses that flow through AOCI in there. Uh, most banks will do some portion of hedging. Uh, to varying degrees, it, it is distinct to every bank. Um, and I think it's, you know, a lot of it's going to come down to views and, uh, liability duration. Uh, Bank of America was one of the heaviest hedgers of the mark to market risk of the AFS book. Uh, but again, I think part of that is because GSIDs are the only ones that actually have to recognize AOCI in regulatory capital. Um, but again, the, the problem here really wasn't the AFS book. It was HTX. Um, and to drive that point home, if we take the Silicon Valley Bank balance sheet, right, they effectively have zero 
book equity, if you mark to market that, that helps maturity portfolio. Um, now, for regulatory capital purposes, they don't realize the mark on the AFS portfolio either, but let's throw out regulatory capital here. We, we almost don't really care about it because we're talking about bank resolution, so we can just go back to kind of good old-fashioned gap balance sheet. And a gap balance sheet, the AFS mark is already reflected in your tangible book equity base. And the reality is that SVB, without the HTM mark, had tons of positive tangible book value. So the issue really wasn't that AFS book. They still had plenty of equity with those unrealized losses. The problem was this massive embedded loss in the HTM book, which they cannot hedge, which no bank can hedge, um, and which, uh, and which ultimately blew them up when they, when they got a liquidity call on the liability side of the house. Uh, Jesse, just one other quick point, uh, I wanted to make. I know we talked about this in the office, but you know, First Republic also, uh, would be more attractive uh, to a potential buyer than than uh, Silicon Valley Bank would would have been. Particularly, I would point out, and we haven't done any extensive work on this at this point, but First Republic does have a very strong franchise in wealth management for high net worth, um, and that's been uh, a business that a number of the banks, you know, both large banks and large regional banks in our coverage have been, you know, expanding into over the past. You know, several years, five years plus. So it, it's you know much less idiosyncratic in terms of the customer base on the loan side as well. Um, so you know, I, I just think you, you have a higher probability of finding a buyer potentially for uh, First Republic than than SVB. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And uh, you know, again, with the caveat that we don't actively cover FRC, so we're not quite as familiar, although. Did cover uh, subdebt issuance for a few years ago, so we have some past familiarity, having read through uh, sort of tech business model there. If FRC does ultimately go under today or tomorrow because they're they're experiencing a true bank run, I I almost kind of feel they would have deserved it. To be frank, um, they, they they just do not have nearly as much of a stark problematic asset liability mismatch as SVB. Um, you know, they don't have that. They have a concentrated deposit base in terms of, you know, for lack of a better word, they're a wealthier person's bank and wealthy people are going to have more money in their accounts. Um, but they're not, you know, correlated in the industrial sense like SVP was with, with Silicon Valley and tech and startups. And so, you know, F FRC really looks like this is just a pure, good old fashioned bank confidence run. Um, but, but fairly devoid of realities, right? In, in the sense that, you know, where, where's the actual problem in the FR, FRC balance sheet, right? We know what the HTM marks on the, on the book are. We can, we can mark them down like that. Fine. We still have tons of positive book equity there. So where are the other problems? I mean, it's an extremely high quality loan book. Um, this is a bank that, you know, very rarely takes any, you know, sizable losses on their lending portfolio. Um, they have a very neat uh, underwriting approach in terms of having uh, compensation clawback for the actual credit underwriter based on the performance of the loan for a period of time. So all, all of that is to say that, that, that FRC topples. I, I don't think there's anything necessarily fundamentally wrong there. Um, it, it's a, it seems kind of fairly obviously pure panic, dead confidence run, um, and, and one they wouldn't necessarily deserve, but the implication of which, to Peter's point, 
is that there is real good franchise value there. Um, and we have to think that, that there are, you know, plenty of banks that are circling the wagons, potentially picking up a really strong franchise that plays into a type, a part of financial services, i.e. transaction banking and banking wealthier customers with more products that is very much in vogue here. Um, you know, the politics is, is obviously going to play, play a factor here. Um, as we're, as we're kind of dealing with, uh, regulators and the government. Uh, balancing very diverse and, and in many cases, um, sort of opposed stakeholder interests. Um, we are a little past the hour here. So, so we're going to try to wrap it up, uh, wrap it up here quickly. Uh, we have one, one person just, just wrote in and said FRC credit losses are nearly zero historically. Um, that, that, that's exactly right. And that's sort of our point here. Um, this is not a case of banks blowing up their balance sheets because they had excessive risk taking, right? This isn't a savings and loan type crisis where they're taking riskier and riskier and riskier bets with their asset liability mismatch. This isn't the GFC where they were just underwriting all these tons of crappy mortgages and hiding them in EPS securitizations. There's, you know, that's life about it. There's effectively nothing wrong with an FRC um, we, uh, just to wrap it up again, um, on sort of how we're thinking about this bank run, some of, some of the risks right now, um, and we will have pieces out shortly, I believe, sort of addressing these things, but the, uh, the concept of using the rating agency actions as a indicator, um, we would think actually a fairly strong, maybe the best indicator of which banks would actually be feeling a liquidity crunch and a run right now, um. Excuse me. Secondarily, I know we, we've been puzzling over this idea as well as why we haven't seen banks, uh, either put out any keys detailing their liquidity positions or management, you know, flooding the airwaves and such. Um, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know how much the, uh, blackout window or, or the quiet period before earnings is playing a factor. I do think that PR is, is probably, um, probably the case that if you think about the banks that have been out there in terms of publicly releasing things, you know, FRC was one of the first ones last Friday. Um, and in general, the banks that we see that are out there are the ones that seem to actually be feeling the bank run. So you might actually end up uh, shooting yourself in the foot if you are a strong bank by coming out and saying, yes, we're fine, because now all of a sudden you're, you're unwillingly rumping yourself in with a bunch of other banks that said they were fine, but, but apparently are actually feeling the crunch. Um, and then secondarily, there, there's on the, on the kind of public liberation side of things and, and the political bent. Um, you know, this is already an extremely politicized event with the SCP failure. Um, we're getting PTSD flashbacks to bank bailouts and, you know, taxpayers subsidizing banksters and all this type of injection and narrative. In that vein, I don't think it's a good look for Jamie Dimon to come out there and say, oh, yeah, we've taken in $50 billion more deposits this week. This is great for us, right? That doesn't really play in a scenario like this. So it very well might be the case. And I think we're expecting, actually, when we actually see what the end of March balance sheets look like, there's going to be some, at least one or two, and probably a bunch of banks posting some pretty eye-popping positive increase numbers. Um, but... It is very bad taste, I think, to brag about that right now, even though it would uh, help bolster the liquidity argument.
And then, you know, there is this question of how do you prevent this type of bank run? And again, we'll, we'll be out with kind of big picture pieces about this. It's very, very difficult. And I think there's a lot of deep soul searching that we in the industry and certain regulators have to do as a result of this, um, especially if a bank like FRC goes, you know, SIBB, I think we've strove time and time and time and time again to show it as an extreme outlier from both a bank financial perspective and from a management mismanagement perspective. Uh, Signature, we are less familiar with, but very clearly has the crypto digital bank uh, deposit asset taking business as, an, as another differentiator. First Republic would be the one that I think is called because again we don't necessarily think there's functionally anything wrong with this bank or the way it ran its business um and yet if they get taken out by a bank run um some 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 really deep questions and these deep questions are basically around you know digitalization of financial services uh it makes it very very easy and, and a lot quicker for people to be able to to initiate withdrawals and get their money out of the bank um and it's also the digitalization of everything else including information and the speed with which information travels. Um, and I think that that's a big part of why the regulators moved with such an unprecedented step to immediately guarantee all the uninsured deposits on Sunday is I'm, I'm sure all of us on the call here were kind of glued to Twitter on Saturday. And it, it was just a mess, right? Um, it was every theory under the sun percolating. You had really loud voices from the Silicon Valley um, that have big platforms from that community. Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, shouting to the heavens that they don't understand how things work effectively. Um, and you had a lot of bad safe posturing, um, as, uh, posturing and masquerading as sort of actual factual information. Um, all of which in this sort of informational vacuum. And I would add to that, that is all exacerbated by, uh, not to sound too cynical here, but what I would call our general financial illiteracy in the country. Um, and, and I'm starting to wonder if, you know, personal financial literacy, you can actually make an argument, especially with the way that the information travels with the lack of, um, a sort of structural understanding of, of, uh, institution that everybody can agree is sort of an authority, right? Um, SVB fails and, Everyone kind of goes to their corners and, you know, it's, it's a woke bank. No, it was a tech bubble bank. You know, come up with your narratives there. In light of that kind of being, it seems like our, our cultural realities here, financial literacy almost strikes me as a very big systemic risk problem for banks, for regulators that we need to actually think about and address here. Um, and again, if FRC goes down, um, that's going to be an actual casualty, I think, of that type of uh, structuring reality we're living with. Um, so after that sort of extended rant, I apologize for it, um, but, but those are some of the thoughts that we've started to bang around in our head over the past week. Um, thank you again for, for bearing with us and patience, um, and, and I hope everyone has a chance to hopefully catch up on some sleep this weekend. I know we are all here at Credit Sites, greatly looking forward to, to going to bed before the sun rises. And so with that, I want to thank uh, my fellow panelists, Peter Simon and Josh Kramer. Thank you all. And good luck out there. Thank you. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. 
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.